Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. As I record this, Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz is visiting Canada and his country has a well-known energy security problem. It imports energy from Russia, thereby funding the war against Ukraine and possibly imperiling its ability to keep the heat on this winter. But now Newfoundland is talking about installing wind turbines to make hydrogen and maybe installing liquefied natural gas infrastructure so it can export energy to Germany. Natural gas is a fossil fuel that's been around forever, but you may be wondering what hydrogen even is. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I spoke to two chemical engineers about this. Hydrogen may be a way for Canada to continue exporting energy, but it's not without controversy. Hydrogen releases no emissions when you use it as a fuel, but the catch is that you have to make it, and that generally does release some emissions. So the question on this show is, should Canada go down this path of investing in hydrogen? As always, the interviews are edited for clarity and brevity. I'm a chemical engineer with decades of experience in the chemical process industry. That's Paul Martin. He runs a private consultancy now in the greater Toronto area, and he's the chair of something called the Hydrogen Science Coalition. And I want to be clear about one thing. He thinks investing in hydrogen as an energy transition strategy is a bad idea. I'll let him explain. You know, my entire career from from my undergraduate until today has involved hydrogen in one way or another. It's it's not been the only thing I've worked on, but every second project for decades has involved hydrogen or syngas, making it, using it, trying not to make it, <laughs> trying to make it more efficiently. So Martin thinks electrification is the way to go, and he's the type of person that investigates everything for himself. So in the middle of our conversation, he offhandedly told me that at one point he was very skeptical of electric vehicles, so he decided to just build one. In 2014, my son and I converted a 1975 Triumph Spitfire to a fully electric car. And in part, the reason that we did that project was that I didn't believe the claims that were being made about battery electric vehicles. And I wanted to investigate them firsthand. And the result was amazing. Same car, first with an engine, now with an electric drivetrain. The difference in emissions was 97% in favor of the electric car. So the electric car emitted 3% of the emissions from source that the same car did doing the same job, which is carrying my sorry uh, body from North York to Burlington and back every day for work. We're comparing the same car, two different drivetrains. But here's the kicker. My other car is a Prius, which is the best car that you can buy in Canada without a plug if what you're worried about is greenhouse gas emissions. My homemade electric car dropped my commuting emissions by 94% relative to my Prius. And on top of it, as if that wasn't good enough, it also dropped my operating costs by a factor of three because efficiency means lower cost. It means you don't waste as much energy. That may have been a little long, but I think it conveys a key principle of the way Martin sees the world, which is that efficiency when it comes to energy 
is going to mean lower costs. Starting from basics, let's hear about what hydrogen is. What hydrogen is, is a chemical. And it's a commodity chemical made in giant quantities in the world, substantially all of which is made from fossil fuels without carbon capture. That's what hydrogen is. It's a chemical. It's not used as a fuel. We don't burn it. We use it to make other fuels, but we don't use it as a fuel. That's what it currently is. People have talked about it being something else for decades, and it's still a chemical. We make 120 million tons of it a year, 70 is pure, 50 million tons a year as hydrogen and mixtures with carbon monoxide that are called syngas. Hydrogen is made almost exclusively, as I said, from fossil fuels, natural gas, petroleum, and coal. I also told them that I've heard it described as an energy carrier. People have called it an energy carrier, but in fact, right now, it's not used as an energy carrier at all. It's used as a chemical. It's used as a chemical reagent. It's used to reduce chemicals, meaning to cause them to gain electrons. And it's used as a chemical to add hydrogen to other chemicals. The things that are made sometimes are fuels. So, for instance, we add a lot of hydrogen to diesel and gasoline and jet fuel in order to remove sulfur. And that's a good thing for the environment. We need to do that if we're going to burn gasoline and diesel and jet fuel. If we don't desulfurize it first, we end up making acid rain, which is undoubtedly bad for the environment. We've, we know that because we did it for a long time and we learned that we couldn't do it anymore. So that hydrogen is being used to environmental benefit, but it results in some additional CO2 emissions and some additional methane emissions. Hydrogen is also used to make ammonia, which is a key fertilizer that helps feed people and their animals. But one of the things he kept saying is that Hydrogen is primarily made with fossil fuels, and so a lot of greenhouse gases are being released when we make it. As I said before, he's an engineer who looks closely at efficiency because that, in his eyes, is what is going to determine its costs. Let, let's say you started with natural gas, you started with methane, and you made hydrogen out of it, and then you burned it. You, you burned the resulting hydrogen. Per unit of energy that you derived from burning, you know, per unit of heat energy that you derive from that burning, you would have been 30% better off in terms of emissions to have just burned the natural gas. So it's worse than fossil fuels. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if it's made from fossil fuels without carbon capture, it's worse than fossil fuels. And, and it's expensive to, to do that. So that's why we don't burn it. Doesn't sound like a great idea so far. Some people say you could use carbon capture to reduce the environmental emissions. Martin is skeptical. But we also have clean energy, like solar and wind and geothermal, which advocates say could be used to make clean hydrogen. First of all, do you propose to make it from electricity, from green electricity? Well, Canada Canada's not a low-cost producer of green electricity from wind and solar because we don't have access to those high-capacity factor wind and solar resources that places like Western Australia and Chile and so on have. So we're not going to make it from excess renewable electricity because we're not generating excess renewable electricity. I mean, we've got grids in places like Alberta and Saskatchewan and Nova Scotia and New Brunswick that still burn quite a lot of coal to make electricity. So if we have excess electricity in this country, we'd better be thinking about giving it to the people that need it to decarbonize their grids. Because, you know, although 80% of us have access to a really good grid, it's not like those grids are oversupplied to the point that it's going to be super easy for us to do the logical thing like switch our transportation industry over from burning fossil fuels to using electricity 
we're going to need that electricity for those higher value, higher merit order uses, right? So it's only excess electricity that one might think of using to make hydrogen from. So that's the first if. And now you have to contend with the reality of what hydrogen is. Hydrogen as a molecule, you know, it, it turns into a liquid when you cool it down enough, but it, it liquefies at 24 degrees above absolute zero, in, which is minus 240-something degrees Celsius. So that's almost as cold as you can get. And things don't get cold to that extent without expending a tremendous amount of energy. So round numbers, it takes about 30% of the energy in the hydrogen that you want to liquefy in order to liquefy it. And in fact, it's worse than that because we're, we're doing something that's wrong. And that thing that we're doing wrong is we're pretending that all forms of energy are worth the same. Energy in the form of heat is measured in joules, which is a unit of energy, and energy in the form of electricity or mechanical energy those are measured in joules too, but they're not worth the same. Okay. And they don't have they don't have the same exchange rate. So if you have one joule of heat, you might be able to turn it into something like 0.3 of a joule of electricity in a in a power plant. So they're not worth the same. So it's not efficient. Yeah. So going back to the hydrogen, we're we're starting out with energy in the form of heat, in the form of hydrogen. And now we have to put in 30% of the energy in that hydrogen in order to liquefy it, but we can't put it in as heat. We have to put it in as work. We have to put it in as electricity or mechanical energy because in order to do it, we have to run compressors. I see. So in fact, when you take the exchange rate into account, it's way more than 30% of the energy in the hydrogen that we're throwing away by turning it into a liquid. I'm not an engineer, but I do know that efficiency doesn't always win in the world. Gasoline-powered cars are not as efficient as electric cars, and yet they've been the dominant form of transportation for decades. And to my surprise, when I said this to Martin, he agreed and told me I was absolutely right. Efficiency means lower cost. It means you don't waste as much energy. And when you look at gasoline cars, they are the triumph of effectiveness or usefulness over efficiency. Because they're not very efficient, but man, gasoline's awesome. I mean, it's really small, it's very dense in energy, it's a liquid, you can just pour it from place to place, it's easy to transport, it's easy to store. So gasoline's amazing in that respect. It's very effective, and it makes us put up with a lot of inefficiency as a result of that effectiveness. But hydrogen's problem as a transport fuel is that it is neither efficient nor effective. Basically, gasoline is really inefficient. A lot of energy gets lost. So is hydrogen, but Martin said it lacks the ease of use that gasoline has. And we don't really have the excess renewable electricity at the moment to make clean hydrogen. So it's not a climate solution in his point of view. Think about it this way. Imagine you wanted to install 10,000 solar panels to make hydrogen. You'd be better off just installing 7,000 solar panels because making hydrogen involves a 30% energy loss. And Martin is saying everything has an environmental impact. Digging up the metals for the solar panels, shipping them, those both have emissions, then they take up land, and it all costs money. So unless hydrogen can do something that solar panels cannot, why go through all this? Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. 
Now let's hear from another chemical engineer who, like Martin, thinks really carefully about the way he sees the world. And he has a totally different take. I think their main disagreement is about the effectiveness of hydrogen. The, uh, the question on efficiency, you know, efficiency is a valuable thing. At the same time, efficiency matters less than what we call resilience or robustness. It also matters less than productivity. That's Matthew Klippenstein, based in Vancouver, who's regional director for Western Canada's Hydrogen Fuel Cell Association. For example, it would be more efficient to you to do all of your business, for example, on a smartphone. It uses maybe five watts of energy. Uh, but most people I know, you know, at least in the information or technology world, use a laptop with two external monitors, external keyboard, probably some very nice headphones. You're easily looking at at least 100 watts of energy there. Now, you might say, well, that's less efficient than the smartphone. And the answer is, well, that gives you productivity that allows you to do more. And if you go back to the, the natural world, you know, uh, mammals, you know, warm-blooded creatures like us, we need 10 times as many calories per kilogram of body weight as cold-blooded animals. And so on an efficiency basis, you know, mammals make no sense. Everything should be reptiles, cold-blooded creatures. But um, the productivity you get from all that extra energy use is very valuable. And that's presumably why we, you know, we mammals are still around today. So efficiency is important, but it's not the only thing. Maybe what I'd say is that efficiency is a means to an end, you know, our net zero world, but it's not an end unto itself. And that's something that sometimes gets forgotten in our enthusiasm. It's not always misplaced, you know, to chase efficiency. Mammals make no sense. It's hard to argue with that. Part of Klippenstein's argument is that hydrogen resembles a fossil fuel in ways that will make it easier to integrate with the system we've been using. So unlike solar or wind, which generate variable amounts of energy depending on the weather, and which are currently difficult to store in large amounts, hydrogen is more like a fossil fuel. And I, I asked for specific examples. Sure. So one challenge that we have in Canada, in many countries, is that we use more energy in the winter than the summer. It's a lot colder. Typically right now, what we do is we store vast amounts of natural gas in underground caverns. And then we draw from those caverns later on in the wintertime when we need the energy. Uh, we don't want to use natural gas going forward. Maybe there's some renewable natural gas we can use. Uh, but in the future, hydrogen will add resiliency to the energy system because we'll have these massive reserves of underground energy we can access, right? All of the leverage that Russia right now has over parts of Western Europe comes from the fact that they depended for this absolutely vital portion of energy, these uh, usable natural gas, fossil fuel stores, they depended on Russian flows. So if Europe had its own large locally produced hydrogen, then they could sink those and they would be independent or not as fully dependent on imports of this energy. So maybe an analogy might be that you know batteries are wonderful for day-to-day -day storage, you collect a whole bunch of sunlight, you can use that in evening hours, uh, maybe you can push it over a couple days. But for this seasonal energy swings that we get, and we get enormous ones, I think our natural gas utilities sometimes use three or five times as much natural gas in the winter months at the peak as during the sort of uh, summertime um, trough of their usage. Hydrogen fills that gap. It's, it's very complementary to direct electrification in that way. That was a point I hadn't fully absorbed. We have batteries and they can store energy from day to day, but we don't really have batteries that can run a power plant for weeks at a time. And if you look at Germany right now, it's dependent on Russia, which is problematic. 
But it's also facing problems because water levels in the Rhine have made it difficult for barges that could carry energy and other goods. And around the world, similar things are happening. There's the climate is dragging down energy production or energy imports or energy transmission lines. And this is probably only going to get worse. Klippenstein said the storability of hydrogen makes it attractive, even if it scores poorly on efficiency. Yeah, you can store like semi-infinite amounts of it, much as we do with natural gas today, that allows you to tide over, you know, these moment-to-moment challenges that uh, you might otherwise have. So his argument is that hydrogen is versatile. And he expanded on this. I see a number of roles. In Ontario, for example, we do have many of these steel mills very interested in using hydrogen instead of coal. Uh, We already use a lot of hydrogen to produce fertilizer for our farmers across the prairies and elsewhere. We'll continue to do that. It will simply be most likely that the hydrogen that we get, we will sink the associated CO2 from using that gas to sequester it to produce a lower emissions fertilizer there will continue to be use of hydrogen to upgrade our hydrocarbons, our oils, our bitumen. My guess, if you were to ask me, is that as demand for oil for transport reduces, we will have the ability to scale up oil, of this bitumen for carbon fiber or other actually higher value products, uh, petrochemicals, things like that. So I expect that we would still use a lot of hydrogen there. I do also see a very large role for hydrogen in transportation especially the heavier duty types of transportation. Not so much cars, but uh, trucks, trains, intercity buses, aviation, and so forth. So there are many roles that hydrogen can play and play very well. The last thing Klippenstein just said was that it could be used for heavy duty or transportation like trucks, which gnawed at me. I'd heard this before, but I still don't really see any on the road. So I asked Martin about this and here's what he said. I'll give the argument that's given for why hydrogen's better for heavy trucks than electric trucks. The argument is that because batteries are heavy and trucks carry goods that are weighed, that must mean that an electric truck must be no good because the heavy batteries will mean that you can carry less weight, less, you know, freight, right? And hence make less money on a trip. The problem with that analysis is that it it's in denial of what the reality is of trucking. When you look at trucking, 75% of truck journeys are limited by the volume of the vehicle, not by its weight, okay? So 75% of truck loads that are shipped from place to place could be shipped in a heavier vehicle as long as it wasn't any physically smaller, as long as the cargo capacity of the box wasn't any smaller. And as a consequence of that you know, modest increase in weight of maybe a couple tons in order to have a battery large enough that you can drive far enough, the, the result is that basically only about 25% of loads would be affected at all by that change. And the other result is that the energy cost to the trucking company is going to drop, and not just by a little, by a lot. And the trucking industry is one of those industries that has so much concern over fuel costs that they actually charge freight users a freight surcharge for fuel, a fuel cost surcharge. And that way they can compete with one another. And if the price of fuel goes up, the people that are shipping bear the same impact. So that industry is really dependent or really sensitive to fuel cost. And if you can tell them, hey, we can drop your energy cost by a factor of three, If the technology exists to do that, that's worth an 
awful lot of very expensive truck just in order to save that energy. But it also saves on maintenance because a lot of the maintenance in the trucking industry is related to braking. And the beauty of electric vehicles is that they do regenerative braking, which reduces brake wear. So hydrogen critics say there are better transportation alternatives. Electric trucks are coming, they say, and those are going to be cheaper, which at the end of the day is what matters to companies that are transporting cargo and looking purely at cost. Other people have said you could build an electric highway with a cable that trucks can plug into now, or you could build more rail and then electrify it because we need to take vehicles off the road. But what Klippenstein answers to all of this is that the politics and reality throw efficiency out the window. You can't run a transmission line across the ocean. You can't even run transmission lines across certain parts of this country. And he would say that in Canada, you have to bring the people who work in the fossil fuel industry along or else they're going to oppose climate change policies and just delay everything. To him, hydrogen is a way to do this. The one thing that I try to emphasize to my friends is that there's no need to make unnecessary enemies, right? I will note that uh, my renewables friends tell me that within about three or four years, Alberta should have more wind and solar, sort of combined wind and solar renewables than any other province in Canada. A bunch of reasons, but one day perhaps they'll be known for more than just oil and gas. Taking a step back, Alberta has probably the cheapest natural gas in the world for various reasons. And they also have the convenient geology where they can store carbon dioxide. So they are a natural home for projects to produce what's called blue hydrogen. This is hydrogen produced uh, with natural gas where you capture the CO2 and sink it under the ground. Uh, There are things to be addressed, you know, upstream uh, methane and fugitive emissions, uh, but those can be addressed and are being addressed. In this context, we have proposals for about 3,300 tons per day of blue hydrogen production in Alberta. These would come online if they all come online in the next six years or so. And that represents about one half of Alberta's current gray or polluting hydrogen production of about 6,600 tons per day. So the, the market participants have signaled, hey, we can do this. Now that Canada has a carbon price, we know that we're going to spend 170 bucks a ton for all our CO2 emissions. Uh, we are absolutely going to capture this carbon. And that was missing before, because if you have no carbon pricing or no or milk-a-toast carbon pricing, then you know what's the incentive for capturing the carbon and burning? Now, I would perhaps note that there is concern that past uh, carbon capture projects have been more modest in their scope, uh, perhaps capturing about 50% of the CO2 produced. And uh, my response would be that That's a factor of the then very weak carbon pricing signals that were in the market. If it costs less than $170 per ton uh, to capture that CO2, they'll capture that for sure. And the the projects being proposed are in the 90 or 95% capture ranges. So he's saying using natural gas and carbon capture, Alberta could theoretically export cleaner energy. But we're not doing that at the moment. And actually, Martin thinks that hydrogen is basically a way for the fossil fuel industry to delay the energy transition. That's his argument. For the fossil fuel industry, hydrogen is a no-lose bet because either the hope of hydrogen delays decarbonization by delaying electrification. And if decarbonization by electrification is delayed, the fossil fuel industry wins because they get to stay in business longer. Or we, the public, through our our governments and government grants and, and subsidy and so on, 
drag the fossil fuel industry into a decarbonized future by way of this quote-unquote blue hydrogen that's really bruise-colored hydrogen. And by so doing, the fossil fuel industry gets dragged by our money into providing energy in a decarbonized future, and the fossil fuel industry wins. So you can see that the fossil fuel industry is in love with hydrogen. But the funny thing is, as in love with hydrogen as they are, they're not investing in putting carbon capture equipment onto the equipment that right now makes all the hydrogen that's used in the fossil fuel industry, which, by the way, is substantially all of the hydrogen that's made in the world, as I mentioned. So we're not decarbonizing hydrogen production itself because it's not an economically viable proposition for the fossil fuel industry without subsidy, right, or, or massive carbon taxes that really punish them for dumping CO2 into the atmosphere. So they're not doing it. And let's be realistic here, you know, hydrogen being this massive chemical, it's 120 million tons a year chemical in the world, that is itself a massive decarbonization problem that we haven't even started addressing, as I mentioned. But it's one that has CO2 emissions associated with it that are greater than the entire aviation industry in the world. Now, let's be clear about something else, though. There are a lot of people who think we have to stop producing petroleum and natural gas, and they're wrong. They're dead wrong. We're still going to need lots of petroleum and a smaller amount of natural gas in the uh, decarbonized future. We just won't be using it as fuels. We'll be using it to make the 10,000 other molecules that we need as chemicals and materials. And we won't be burning them. And hopefully we won't be burning any petroleum or natural gas in the process of making them. And to do that will not require one single new invention, although there'll be lots of them. It wouldn't require a single new invention to do it. Like We're squandering a precious finite resource that has higher value use to humankind by orders of magnitude than the dumb thing we're doing with it right now, which is burning it. So that's his efficiency and practicality argument, that we need to start using our resources in the smartest way possible if we're going to stop climate change and all the misery and loss of human life it's causing already and is going to cause in the future. Klippenstein thinks climate change is just as important, and he thinks that hydrogen gets you to net zero faster. I guess I would say that hydrogen is the alternative where we have difficulty with direct use of electrification. For many years, while we had very uh, you know, modest climate goals, we didn't really need it. So there wasn't much attention or much robust, comprehensive policy support for the sector. You had mentioned earlier that uh, you know hydrogen does receive a number of subsidies and so forth. And having spent a couple of years in the renewable energy sector, uh, what I would say is that the hydrogen sector is very much like the early wind energy sector in the 1990s, say, when wind was quite expensive, and the early solar photovoltaic sector in the early 2000s, when it too was very expensive and critics were like, well, you know, this isn't going to be cheap ever. It's, it's a whole bunch of subsidies, blah, blah, blah. If you put up a chart with the growth of the wind sector in the 90s and the growth of the solar photovoltaic sector in the early 2000s, and you overlay what's happened in the fuel cell sector, one part of the hydrogen set of solutions, over the past seven or eight years, you see that these actually line up. We have this precursor where we are actually following. And now wind and solar are very successful. They still have their critics. Hydrogen fuel cells, again, one part of the hydrogen solution, are on track to being very successful, comma, while also still having their critics. As to the fact that hydrogen itself is an emissions problem, Klippenstein thinks the carbon tax in Canada is going to start solving this. So there's no interest in clean hydrogen unless you have a carbon price. 
Uh, and so one reason for not exploring hydrogen was you didn't have a carbon price. And so there was no penalty for using gray hydrogen, uh, dirty hydrogen. And so if you're going to use dirty hydrogen, well, is it a climate solution, really? There's like one of the pauses was on account of there's no uh, carbon price. What all this means is that Klippenstein thinks we could build a hydrogen infrastructure in parallel to our natural gas infrastructure. To be clear, they're not the same. It would be a new system of pipes, new gas stations, etc. It's not clear exactly what Germany will do. The plan in Newfoundland is to build wind turbines that can produce clean hydrogen for export, or to build a new terminal that could export natural gas. None of this is going to happen anytime soon. It's all going to take a few years to build. And the fact is that Germany needs it sooner than that. But if Klippenstein's right, one day we will be exporting hydrogen to other countries. If Martin's right, this is never going to make economic sense, so it won't happen. And the time and money and energy we spend studying it are going to end up delaying other viable alternatives that could bring down emissions more effectively. There's a lot at stake in this, and no one has a crystal ball, but those are the arguments. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you to my two guests, Paul Martin, who runs a private consultancy in the greater Toronto area and chairs the Hydrogen Science Coalition, and Matthew Klippenstein, who's regional director for Western Canada's Hydrogen Fuel Cell Association, based in Vancouver. Thanks, as always, to Bryce Hall, who composed and performed the original music on the show and produced this episode. Thanks as well to Pamela Heaven, Victoria Wells, and Noella Ovid for their web support and editing. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of Down to Business. Until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.